0: Hello and welcome to New Mexico In Focus, the podcast for July 5th, 2022. I'm your host, Lou DeVizio. I hope everyone had a great holiday weekend. It was the first Albuquerque 4th for my wife and I, and we wanted to see fireworks, of course, but we didn't want to get caught in the middle of the traffic around Balloon Fiesta Park Monday night, so we decided to park up near the Sandia Peak tram by the boarding station there off of Tramway, and wow, I mean, absolutely amazing. A great view of the city really on any night you see for miles lights of houses neighborhoods downtown but on the fourth to see hundreds maybe even thousands of fireworks popping up around every corner of that really a spectacular view and a great view of the city's big show too there at balloon fiesta park uh, it was really a truly a unique experience and one that we only could have had in new mexico and i'm grateful for that Anyway, that's enough about me. We're all here for some news. Here are the headlines that you need to know about. Police in Highland Park, Illinois, say the gunman who attacked an Independence Day parade in suburban Chicago fired more than 70 rounds with an AR-15 style rifle. Six people have died to this point and 30 others are wounded. It took hours for police to capture the suspect. They say 21-year-old Robert Cremo III evaded initial capture by dressing as a woman and blending into the fleeing crowd. Police say he used that AR-15-style rifle to spray bullets from the top of a commercial building into a crowd that had gathered for the parade. Investigators believe the shooter spent several weeks planning the assault. Back here in New Mexico, two men are facing charges after a deadly car crash in the town of Wagon Mound that killed a woman and two small children. State police say 22-year-old Jesse Joel Blanco was intoxicated and speeding when he struck a car that was backing out of a driveway. The driver of that vehicle, 42-year-old Irene Romero, was declared dead at the scene of the collision along with her 9-year-old niece and 4-year-old granddaughter. Blanco's passenger, 20-year-old Dominic Armijo, is facing charges for tampering with evidence. Police say he tried to hide alcohol containers after the crash. There's new legal action in the works against two attorneys that helped the Donald Trump campaign challenge New Mexico's 2020 presidential election results. That happened in the weeks prior to the January 6th, 2021 insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. A group, including former Albuquerque Mayor Marty Chavez, is asking the state Supreme Court to intervene and ensure a public investigation. The complaint cites possible violations of conduct rules by New Mexico-based attorney Mark Caruso and another attorney, Michael Smith. The new complaint highlights recent testimony in the congressional hearings about January 6th, including the role of Santa Fe-based lawyer John Eastman. Eastman now, he's accused of leading plans into the 2020 election to pressure then-Vice President Mike Pence into rejecting the Electoral College results. The California State Bar is investigating whether or not Eastman violated the state's law and ethics rules for attorneys. The Navajo Nation Veterans Administration has been formally recognized by the head of the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. It's the first tribal nation program to receive accreditation to help veterans submit federal benefits claims directly to the VA. Navajo President Jonathan Nez noted that the accreditation achieved for the tribal government's VA will greatly help Navajo veterans, many who face difficulties traveling to VA centers outside of tribal land. VA Secretary Dennis McDonough recognized the tribal government's program status during a visit to Gallup late last month, but it comes as the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs recommended closing four community-based outpatient clinics in Gallup, Las Vegas, and Raton, New Mexico. Navajo Nation leadership along with Senators Ben Ray Lujan and Martin Heinrich have opposed those proposed closures. Customers may end up saving money when the largest electric provider in the state closes the coal-fired San Juan generating station. The plant was set to shut down at the end of June, but regulators are now allowing the Public Service Company of New Mexico to keep one unit open through September to meet peak summer demands. The Public Regulation Commission is forcing the utility to apply credits as the plant shuts down rather than waiting for the next rate case. We're told the first rate credit cuts about $1.76 for residential customers on their monthly bills, The second credit of about 643 would come in in October when the plant stops producing electricity for PNM customers. Sticking with the PRC, State House Speaker Brian Egolf will serve on the new nominating committee to select possible members of the New Mexico Public Regulation Commission, the PRC. Egolf appointed himself to the committee. The seven-member committee must convene by September 1st and it will select five nominees, at least five nominees. Of those five, the governor will select three members. That panel replaces the five-member elected commission that has been in place for years. That change was approved by a statewide vote. Santa Fe Archbishop John C. Wester is speaking about the decision to mortgage the iconic Santa Fe Cathedral to meet a settlement agreement tied to church sex abuse victims. He says the action to mortgage the Cathedral Basilica of St. Francis of Assisi was a last resort. The Archdiocese of Santa Fe filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in 2018 as sex abuse claims surged. The chairman of a creditor's committee negotiated an agreement on behalf of surviving victims. A tentative deal reached in May totals $121.5 million and would involve about 375 claimants. Those are your New Mexico news headlines for July 5th, 2022. More than a week after the Supreme Court's conservative majority voted to overturn national abortion protections through Roe v. Wade, the court's decision has created an avalanche of legal questions. Governor Lujan Grisham has tried to answer some of those, Last week she issued an executive order clarifying New Mexico's position as a supporter of reproductive rights, but let's not act like this isn't a bit confusing for people caught in the middle of this especially. Correspondent Gwyneth Dolan sat down with Ellie Rushforth, Reproductive Rights counsel for the American Civil Liberties Union here in New Mexico, to help clear things up.
1: Ellie Rushforth, thank you so much for being with us today.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Uh, this has been a whirlwind week, uh, quick reality check. The United States Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. What is the immediate impact on New Mexico?
2: So it's a big question um, because the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade has implications that are far reaching um, that impact abortion rights, certainly but impact many of the fundamental rights that we have organized our lives around for two decades, or excuse me, for two generations. And so practically here in New Mexico um, in 2021, we removed um, the old unconstitutional abortion ban from our books. And so the provision of abortion care legally will remain the same here in New Mexico. So if you've got an appointment, keep it and if you need an appointment you can get one here more practically however though we know that new mexico for for many many years has been a place where people can can seek and receive high quality and compassionate abortion care and as that is restricted and banned around the country you know we're talking about around 36 million people in in half of our states that just lost their legal protections for exercising their fundamental right for bodily autonomy. And so practically in New Mexico, we are going to experience, and we already are experiencing a stressed infrastructure.
1: Let me ask you, you know, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham this week announced a series of executive orders. Uh, Republicans denounced these as a political stunt, but what is the legal impact of
2: what she's done? So, executive action, executive orders in circumstances like this are incredibly important. And we applaud um, our governor and governors around the country who have taken important steps to protect patients and providers in their states. So, this executive order did two things first, it directed regulatory bodies. Um, that that regulate healthcare providers um, to revisit their uh, essentially reciprocal disciplinary um, actions. Um, it's it's a little bit technical, a little bit wonky, but basically, many um, healthcare providers are licensed in multiple states, and as these states criminalize and um, otherwise restrict abortion care. And, and other reproductive health care, um, what this executive order is attempting to do is shield those providers who may experience um, essentially discrimination for providing um, health care. Um, so ensuring that they're um, protected here in New Mexico at the licensure level. So this, this sounds it's pretty in the weeds here, you know, um, what, what what is the big
1: picture of what we're talking about? What is it that other states are criminalizing
2: that we don't know about? Yeah. So so it's related to the second half of this this executive order, which directed um, executive departments and agencies um, to to not cooperate, essentially with investigations into safe and legal abortion care. And so what we are facing around the country right now, states are not only passing civil and regulatory restrictions on abortion care that impact patients, providers, and their family members, they're also criminalizing basic healthcare and pregnancy. And so what we already know and what we've already seen is the criminalization of pregnancy outcomes. And unsurprisingly, those who are criminalized, investigated and harassed are largely folks from communities of color, lower income communities and immigrant communities. And so around the country, we are seeing laws passed that not only criminalize pregnancy outcomes, but turn people's bodies and their family members and their basic medical care into crime scenes. And so what many states are allowing to do are upending people's lives for
1: basic medical care. So I'm hearing you say criminalizing of pregnancy outcomes is like, if there's a miscarriage, if something goes wrong, they're investigating this as a
2: crime. So clinic, so a couple of different things. And what what these other states have done is deputize healthcare providers, anyone in the healthcare system, and and require um, folks in the healthcare system, folks in law enforcement, um, folks in state agencies, and our neighbors to investigate how our pregnancies progress, our activities during pregnancy, And um, many of these states have created felony penalties for pregnancy outcomes. And so clinically speaking, um, miscarriage management, miscarriage, um, and many pregnancy outcomes are clinically indistinguishable from abortion care. And we know that when folks are investigated for their health, for their pregnancies, not only do they fail to seek medical attention but they run the risk of of not being able to manage their own lives safely. And so many you know when I say criminalize when I say investigate I really invite folks to think about what that means for for an individual's life. So somebody you have you've never met an entire stranger could have reported you for a completely innocuous behavior, could have reported you for a pregnancy loss, could have reported you for any number of activities that you engage in while pregnant, or a family member who helps you get to the doctor or or one of those circumstances, report you to law enforcement, who then get access to your cell phone history, your um, geotagging, if like you visited certain physical um, locations, and and so I think it's really important for folks to understand that even if ultimately an investigation does not result in in a prosecution or incarceration, which is completely unconscionable for for criminalizing somebody's pregnancy outcome an investigation into your your health and well-being can result in you know can result in pretrial detention it can result in job loss it can result in you um, losing custody of your own children and so these are really dire consequences of of pregnancy criminalization that we frankly um, have not seen um, in this country, that we cannot anticipate in this country. Um, So let me ask you this, women in New Mexico, people
1: in New Mexico who are saying to their friends and family, strangers in other states, if you need help getting abortion care, come to New Mexico and I will help you. Are they running a, a risk of being prosecuted for that?
2: So while i am a lawyer i will not be giving legal advice on this show but i what i will say is that the legal system is being weaponized in a way um, that we have not seen before um, certainly with respect to private medical decisions and so what other states are attempting to do some of them have introduced legislation already are attempting to attach Civil, regulatory, and criminal penalties to helpers, to family, to neighbors, to abortion funds, to um, to ride to, uh, rideshare programs. So,
1: so we're going to take that as a maybe, <laughs> as so, a, not full <laughs> legal advice, but a maybe. Yeah, and so I would this. recommend? Oh, go ahead. Well, and we'll put some information on the website too. But you know, you mentioned uh, the repeal of that old abortion law the state legislature and the governor's uh, office here in New Mexico are firmly controlled by Democrats. There's no overturning this. There's no criminalizing of abortion that's going to happen anytime soon. But, you know, for supporters of abortion rights, is there more that they think the legislature and the governor should do, It say, in the coming legislative session?
2: Yes, I'm so I'm so glad to be talking about this, because one thing we can never afford to do is um, be complacent. And certainly um, one thing that that has um, a lot of us really concerned right now are efforts at a national abortion ban. We know um, Republican leadership, we know um, anti-abortion extremists are ready and willing to to pass a nationwide ban at their first opportunity. And so here in this state, um, I'll just reiterate, we can't afford to be complacent and priority one here in New Mexico is to hold the line. We've had major victories um, under our belt, um, securing rights um, to contraception coverage, to uh, non-discrimination against pregnant workers and repealing this old ban. Now our job is to not only hold the line, but expand and protect access. And so steps to protect the physical security and privacy of patients, providers, and helpers. We have to eliminate cost barriers to sexual and reproductive health broadly. We need to protect providers, patients, and helpers from attacks that are against New Mexico public policy. And we need to shield New Mexicans from other states unconstitutional, Legally suspect and dangerous extraterritorial overreach, and so what I'm hearing from leadership in within our policymakers is gratefully everything is on the table, and you know I look so forward to working with policymakers and others in the reproductive health rights and justice world to ensure that abortion and reproductive health more broadly remains safe and legal here in New Mexico. Ellie, New Mexico is one of the
1: few states that has essentially no major restrictions on abortion. Women from more restrictive states, pregnant people from more restrictive states have long been coming here um, for abortion. This is likely to bring more of them. What is the impact going to be on New Mexico uh, in terms of their access?
2: What we're seeing unfold right now is not only a constitutional crisis, but a public health crisis in the making. And so we all know this, here in New Mexico, we have a general lack of access to healthcare, particularly in more rural parts of our state, and even more particularly when it comes to reproductive health. Look, I grew up in southern New Mexico um, and it has always been a challenge to access the reproductive health that we need and so as we we look towards receiving folks from other states who need basic medical care. You know what is going to happen is an, a stressed infrastructure and already abortion providers um, have been. Providing care to, to people all across the country. Um, they've extended their hours, they've hired more staff. We are experiencing um, an expansion of providers here in New Mexico. But what this means practically are um, longer wait times, not only for abortion care, but for other types of reproductive health care. Many abortion providers are full scope reproductive health care providers. And so as people as wait times increase um, and you know, abortion is a particularly time sensitive um, uh, type of healthcare, we are going to see a stressed infrastructure. And it's important to understand that the folks that are able to come here, um, for every person that is able to come here and get the healthcare that they need, they will have had to take time off of work, secure childcare, secure travel funds, get the appointment, pay for the procedure or medication thousands of people will not be able to access those resources and so yes our infrastructure will be stressed but we cannot lose sight of the fact that people that it takes a certain level of resources and privilege to leave your home state to get health care and many many other people will be trapped in their home state unable to access care that they need
1: thank you for that ellie Rushforth will be following up on those developments as they happen uh leading to the next legislative session thanks again thank you so much
0: Thank you to Correspondent Gwyneth Dolan for that interview, and to ACLU Reproductive Rights Counsel Ellie Rushforth for offering her time during what is a very busy time. As Gwyneth told you, we're going to be following this from every angle, this Roe v. Wade situation, the reversal by the Supreme Court, so stay with us for that. We're also celebrating the last week of a unique and enlightening exhibit that celebrates the early contribution of African American citizens in New Mexico. Our state has a rich cultural fabric, but sometimes lost in that history, are the contributions of the African-American settlers that came here in the 19th century. Facing the Rising Sun, The Journey of African-American Homesteaders in New Mexico is a high-tech mobile exhibit aiming to change that. New Mexico In Focus host Gene Grant got a chance to speak with some of the people responsible for this work, telling the story of those pioneers. On this interview, you'll hear from Gene, you'll hear from Rita Padrell, who's the director of the African American Museum and Cultural Center of New Mexico, Thomas Williams is a documentarian involved with the exhibit, Marilyn Pettis-Hill is a third-generation homesteader with a unique perspective on this period, and then there's Eric Yakely, a technologist, making this exhibit one of the more unique and interactive art experiences you'll
3: find. (laughs) Welcome to all of you. Rita, first of all, let me start with you. You have been working this project for as long as I've known you actually, (laughs) for quite a long time now and here it is. Tell us about how did we come here? What were the circumstances and how did we end up being in the three places that ended up being the main homesteading areas here in in New Mexico? To begin
4: with uh, the history of the nation, it was a time of upheaval. The Civil War uh, was going on, had ended, and um, people were migrating and they were migrating. So it was a time of mass migration and people were migrating because um, laws were coming in. So in the South, the Civil Rights Act of 1875 was appealed, was was, uh, determined to be unconstitutional. And that act actually allowed for um, all groups to be in public facilities. And Mm -hmm. once it was decided it was unconstitutional, uh, Jim Crow came in. So in 1883, when that law was made unconstitutional, in the Southern states, Jim Crow came in with a vengeance. Mm -hmm. And so the migration of African-Americans One of the reasons for migration was the oppressiveness of these laws and the cruelty and the types of things that were happening as the South tried to re-enslave its African-American population. And one of the reasons the West was popular was the 1862 Homestead Act. Mm -hmm. And that act allowed people to homestead 160 acres as long as they were 21 years of age, had never Uh, picked up arms against the United States, were a citizen of the country, which but that was kind of flexible and only had to pay a minimal fee, do basic improvements over a five-year period, and then they would get a patent to the land. So I think coming out of enslavement and being property, the idea of owning property and finding sanctuary from the oppressiveness of the south and then you also had the buffalo soldiers who were already in the west and mm-hmm. so many of them were in the state of new mexico and these opportunities to own land um, caused them to stay. And then during that period, sometimes people forget there was an epidemic of tuberculosis. So health also became an issue that brought African-Americans to the Southwest.
5: Mm
3: -hmm. That's interesting. And what's the time period when we first started coming and I don't wanna say in numbers because it was very much individual decisions, but is there a time period we know that the first families were here from the South?
4: Well, you it kind of starts around. So with the Buffalo Soldiers, it's you know kind of earlier, uh, and then they start leaving the forts in the like around 1880 in, in that time frame and start homesteading in New Mexico. Your families coming out of the South, I would say, are coming out again in the late 1800s. So the Boyer family is coming uh, out of Georgia, and his vision was to start a african-american town sovereign town for african-americans and he had heard of the homestead act so he's coming out of georgia in about uh the late 1800s you know and this is like his fourth attempt at starting a sovereign african-american town and so he just saw opportunities so between i would say the late 1800s and maybe about 1925 or so you had quite a bit of migration to new mexico because of the ability to own
3: land that's fascinating want to bring marilyn in a quick second That, that boyer story is so fascinating that he walked for nine months with a student from Georgia to get to New Mexico to make this happen. It's just it's the most amazing thing. And Marilyn, when you look at your own family history, I've just got to imagine, you know when you when you someone's got to want something bad enough to do it, you know <laughs> like this. Tell, you know your family history. tell about tell us about yours. How did your great granddad come here? and what were the circumstances?
6: Well, um, part of it is want and part of it is uh, preservation. Right. Because when they were in Texas, they were threatened. The family was threatened. Uh, the Redcoats had threatened to burn their house down. Oh, wow. And a very nice neighbor uh, gave my grandfather and his mother a horse and buggy. So they used that to travel to Oklahoma Hoping that in Oklahoma things would be better, mm-hmm. hoping that the family would be safer. However, once they were there, they encountered the same types of things, uh, which is, you know, people want to be in a place where they're safe, where their family is safe. That's just like a simple thing, uh, not even the American dream, but really uh, a, a constitutional issue, wanting to be safe and, and have liberty. So when that did not happen, they then migrated to New Mexico with some other families, putting in their uh, possessions on a train and coming west. Their goal was to go to California. Ah. However, when my grandfather, uh, when they got to New Mexico, they saw the Rio Grande River. And I always tell people it had to be spring or summer because uh, otherwise there would not have been green. Right. <laughs> So, so it had to be during that time frame, And during those times, the river, there was a lot of water in the Rio Grande River. Even when I was young, there was a lot of water in the Rio Grande River. And being a farmer, he looked and saw that this could be something uh, that he could raise his family. He could farm, he could uh, plant all kinds of crops, and he knew how to do that. Mm-hmm. So that got him to New Mexico. Interesting. Now, where did where did he settle? uh specifically initially he was in uh the messiah park area right messiah old messiah really
3: interesting rita let me bounce to you i'll I'll bring the fellas in in a quick second let me bounce back to you since we're on that part of uh one of the three enclaves how big did it get how how thriving was it what was commerce like what was day-to-day life like that's the part that's so interesting to me
4: Well, what is interesting about homesteading in the Southern part of the state is most of the people who homesteaded, homesteaded under the uh, 1916 stock raising homestead, which was specific to the West. So they were trying to get people to the West because there were vast amounts of land. And so you could homestead uh, 640 acres of land. So, um so imagine having 640 acres of land and you had about uh during this time frame the so around 1920 right in there you had about almost 40 African American families that homesteaded in the Los Cruces area in these 640 acres swinging east of course to uh
3: probably our most you know infamous enclave is Blackdom, New Mexico. And uh, Rita, could you talk a bit about Blackdom and how Blackdom came to be?
4: So Blackdom is close to the amount of homesteaders that uh, Votto has. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. you've got about 40 families that um, migrate uh, to Blackdom in the early 1900s. They actually advertised in the crisis magazine, uh, which is a magazine of the NAACP, Uh, you know, come to this place and you you will own your own land, you you know, you will be sovereign, you can be self determined, you will have sanctuary. And Frank Boyer was behind that vision. So he and his family come in the early 1900s. He has, I mean, 11 or 12 kids and his children homestead. And um, the thing about homesteading uh, was the economic base because you did have to improve the land. And so they needed economic foundation. And the banks, of course, weren't giving it uh, to African Americans, which meant um, almost all your homesteaders in Blackdom and Las Cruces and worked full time jobs in like Roswell or Dexter, uh, while they still had to improve the homestead. And they did incorporate Blacktown in, I think, 1911, they were trying to make uh, an all-Black town and they did have their own church, their own post office, their own schools, uh, you know, their own agriculture. But in the uh, mid-1920s, and they give a lot of different reasons, one was the the water, Um, another was an insect infestation, but for whatever reasons, it became um, not viable to work the land, and most of the homesteaders left Blackdom either going to Vado or going into uh, Roswell.
3: Gotcha, gotcha. Interesting. I'm looking at the actual advertisement you you mentioned a second ago. That's at the exhibit, and uh, I'm, I'm going to bring in Eric here. Eric, if you can unmute, I want to uh, talk to you about this. It's so interesting to see historical documents, guys, because big letters wanted five hundred Negro families, farmers <laughs> preferred in parentheses. I always thought that was pretty cute. <laughs> to settle on free government lands in Chavez County, New Mexico. Blackdom is a Negro colony, fertile soil, ideal climate, no, quote, Jim Crow laws. And Jim Crow is in in quotation marks, interesting. for For information, write Harold Coleman, Blackdom, New Mexico. Uh, no zip code needed not in those days that's for sure and Eric interestingly and, and Thomas I want to get you in on this too when you found these you know finding these kind of documents how you know adding this to an exhibit how difficult was it to find and then of course your personal journey finding them and adding them to the exhibit and, and getting them done in a technology way as well it's interesting. Tell us about and, and
7: yeah our team was uh largely an enabler right so we really leaned on rita and and, and family members for a lot of those documents a lot of that mm-hmm. just a real wealth of um you know photographs from the from the past and, and to help help tell the story right and so uh mm-hmm. part of the exhibit is a, a touchscreen screen interactive so it's really a collection viewer right so we can pack quite a bit of information into that and you don't have to you know walk around the room and and read everything on the wall for example so the um but you know combination of that overview and timeline uh, the individual family stories and then the story of the lands and that was all again <clears> driven by by Rita's vision and um you know of what this exhibit uh the story that it would tell so um yeah it was very uh it's great to partner with with Rita on the on the layout of these how they would be most accessible how we could kind of easily navigate through this large collection of documents and then working on the captioning. I had the honor of working with with Marilyn, specifically with her family, and kind of talking through all the captions there and, and learning you know, a great deal about their family history. So really unique opportunity for me to, um, you know I knew almost nothing about um, homesteading in New Mexico, period, much less the uh, African-American experience with homesteading. So really um, fantastic opportunity.
3: Let's get Thomas in here. Sorry, Thomas, I, I meant to swing you in here just a few minutes ago. Tell us your approach going in as an artist. What did you want to do here? What was What was your goal with the documentary?
5: the biggest thing was allowing the family members to tell their story and you know um put out what they wanted to be put out there as opposed to um taking bits and pieces of their story and telling it ourselves we wanted to make sure that the families were able to tell their story um and basically put what they want out there because you know lots of times um, I come from a news background. You know, you interview somebody, and they they watch it on TV, and then they're like, "That's not what I said." You know, right. it's, <laughs> we take bits and pieces of the sound bites and you turn it into a story. But we really wanted to um, let you let the the people that we interviewed tell this story, so that what what really happened was put out there, as opposed to our interpretation of what happened. Mm-hmm.
3: Hey, Rita, before we forget, we've got to talk about a very important part of our migration, which is the East End Edition here in Albuquerque. Um, a lot of folks, again, this is a big mystery for a lot of folks here, and there's been a big fight for a lot of years to get it set aside as a, a historical area that has not worked out so far. Tell us, where where was the East End Edition uh, located and, and how did it come to be a, a place for us to, to get a foothold here in Albuquerque?
4: Well, it was actually on, um the Lomas, Wyoming uh, area of um, Albuquerque, and kind of going back to what Marilyn was talking about, what is so amazing about the stories is the thread of vision that people had in these early times. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. Dr. uh, James Lewis homesteaded under the 1862, home he homesteaded 160 acres. He came here for his health. He started two tuberculosis clinics the People's uh, Sanatorium and Booker T. Washington Sanatorium tuberculosis clinics. But he bought this land and he had a vision because Wyoming and Lomas. There was nothing out there, but dirt, you know, There no streets, nothing paved, but he had a vision and he, in 1938, he plots it out uh, with a group called the Fraternal Aid Society, which actually pushed African-Americans to homestead land. So in 1938, he plots out and gives to Bernalito County, this 160 acres with homes and parks and a community center and 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 calls it the East End edition. And it is um, a viable and interesting community. And we've tried several times to have it part of the historic uh, preservation, because now car dealerships are kind of moving in, buying the homes, but it's such a vital part of the history
3: mm-hmm. of
4: Albuquerque. We'd like to see that happen, yeah.
3: So all of you, Thomas, Eric, Marilyn, and of course Rita Padrell and others who put this on. Thank you so much. <laughs>
0: Thanks, Gene. Thanks to our guests. Don't forget to check out that exhibit at the African American Museum and Cultural Center of New Mexico. It's running through July 10th, so you don't have much time. Also, don't miss our show this week. It's one we're proud of here at New Mexico PBS. It's called The Longest Season An Our Land Wildfire Special, and it highlights the impacts of climate change, severe drought, and the longer and longer fire season across our state. But it also gives us some hope. Our Land Executive Producer Laura Paskus gives a thoughtful look at some of the community-based forest management strategies that have proven to mitigate fire damage. That's New Mexico in Focus this Friday night at 7 o'clock on New Mexico PBS. I'm Senior Producer Lou Divizio for this episode of New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. Thank you for joining us as always, and enjoy the rest of your week.